0: You're listening to Deal Talk with 7MA, providing invaluable insight into investment banking and the M&A space through honest conversations with industry thought leaders, business pioneers and innovators. We'll pull back the curtain and give you the inside scoop on trends in our targeted industries and provide you the tools to better position your company in today's market.
1: Today's episode of Deal Talk with 7MA, I'm joined by Sean Wyrick and Rob Thomas, two former 7
2: Mile clients. We had the pleasure of working with Sean and Rob when they decided to take their business, Zilker Technologies, through a sale process, which ultimately ended in their acquisition by EY. To lead today's conversation, I have 7 Mile senior associate, Sydney Scadden, who worked closely on this Zilker transaction and is also a key member of our e-commerce sector coverage team. Sydney, I'm going to let you take the reins from here. Thanks, Ariel, so much for for that introduction. As she mentioned, my name is Cindy Scadden. I I am a senior associate here with the Seven Mile team. As she mentioned, I had the great pleasure of working with the Zilker team last year through their transaction process and eventual sale to EY. And we're super excited to have both Rob and Sean on the podcast today. Through the conversation, we're going to take a look through somewhat of a sell side process case study, as well as discuss the elephant in the room, a little bit about COVID-19 and chat about how the Zilker team continue to make strides within the industry, as well as their response plan, and then get into overall trends within the digital and and e-commerce ecosystems. Rob, Sean, again, thank you so much for joining us. I would love to give you guys a chance to introduce yourselves and, and the company and learn more about how each of you got into the business.
3: Sure. Hey, Sydney. thank you, and and thanks for everything you did for us during the process. It's definitely a a team sport, and uh, you were were a key player on our team, so thank you for that. So I'll introduce myself first. My name is Rob Thomas. I was the CEO and co-founder of Zilker Technology. We started Zilker six years ago because we wanted to do digital transformation differently. To do that, we looked for hard and interesting problems to solve, Quick example, taking a company that builds heating and air conditioning units and transforming how they do business with their distributors and retailers, creating digital consumer experiences for companies like that in places where telephones and paperwork were the norm is something that got us really excited. So what keeps me interested in in this business and continuing to do this is helping clients like this achieve outsized growth from technology investments, which lead to customer happiness, employees thrive, they're able to hire, hire more people, and clients are able to grow their businesses.
1: Sean? Thanks, Rob. My name is Sean Wyrick. I was the uh, CTO and the second co-founder of Zilker with Rob. We also had two other co-founders that uh, weren't able to make it with us today. But the reason, you know, Rob highlighted a little bit of why we started Zilker and starting Zilker for me was was a lifelong dream. I always wanted to be a co-founder and establish a company and build it up and, and realize the growth and the opportunity that comes along with that. And at Zilker, we were very lucky to have an awesome team. We were able to really expand our technology capabilities and build out into other solution sets around those, including things like creative and UI UX. And why consulting and, and why that industry was interesting to me is the fact that you know every customer has a unique challenge that they need to help, help solving. As a consultant, you get to see those across industries and across customers and apply learning to each of those situations and, and really grow yourself as in your career and also get the opportunity to, to help a customer from a different industry with something that you learned in banking, for example, and then turn around and use that in retail. I found that to be a very interesting part of being a consultant and, and working in this industry.
2: Awesome. I remember back in 2019 when you know I met both of you guys at our annual conference and here just about a year and a half later, what a crazy adventure it's really been. Mm-hmm. would love to dive into a little bit about how you and, and the other partners decided shortly thereafter the conference, it was the right time to explore this type of transaction.
3: Yeah, I, I remember that conference very well. We had a lot of really great meetings with other companies like ourselves and then with private equity firms, as well as large strategics that were at that conference. Really, really great conference. So quick plug for that conference. because <laughs> awesome. and, and, and that was the third one that, that I attended. Sean was there with me as well. And it, and it really kind of got the ball rolling for this process because as we went along, we knew that somewhere along the way, it would be time to take our team and what we were doing to a bigger platform. So whether that was going to be private equity or being acquired by a larger strategic like we did, but we didn't really know the timing. We didn't set a timetable or anything, but when we were at that conference, we just noticed a change in the conversations that people were having with us. We could tell that there was an increased interest level, the things that we were doing in technology, which we'll get into a little bit later, the size of the company, the level of profitability and revenue that we had achieved were all becoming very interesting to investors. And so at that point, I think it was a week or so after that, we made a conscious decision to kind of test the market. And we were very pleasantly surprised at the strength of the demand for what we do and and really just as importantly, how we do it. I talked about that in my intro. I think we do things differently and companies really did recognize that. We also ultimately found a buyer that was a great fit for our team. Had we not found that buyer, then we'd still be an independent company. But we found a really great buyer where our culture was aligned, our capabilities were just an almost exact fit for them. So, and we'll talk about that a little bit later as well. But yeah, it's been an interesting journey and it started at your conference.
2: It sure has. And appreciate that shameless plug. And this might be another on-accident shameless plug, but you know, what type of factors played into, you know, you guys deciding on an advisor and exploring that type of process?
3: Well, really it came down to trust and credibility. It's a very, very big decision to entrust your the future of your company and, you know, Sean and I haven't gone through a process like this before of starting and and ultimately selling a company. So, having a good guide in that process is really important. And so, you know, back to trust and credibility. So Seven Mile, it was actually Leroy Davis reached out to me about five years ago when we were very small. We started the business six and a half years ago. So he, he caught me when we were maybe 18 months in. But there was no pressure. It wasn't like, hey, you need to sell your company and all this sort of stuff. It was like, I'd like to provide assistance to you and, and advice to you as you go through this journey of building your company so that you know one day, if and when you guys decide to sell the company. I'd like to, by that point, have earned your, uh, your business or, your, or the opportunity to do that for you. And so Leroy was great. And as I mentioned before, we had attended three of the conferences along the way, which were very educational and very useful, getting to you know, network with other people in the industry that were in similar shoes to us, as well as companies that are out buying companies and understanding what they're looking for and what is important. Through that process, we developed a lot of trust with Seven Mile advisors. And the credibility came along as well as we asked other people who were also working with Seven Mile, both currently and, and even in the past. And they all had really good things to say about how you guys conduct business. I really think that we had the opportunity at that point when we said, hey, you know what, let's go touch the market. We could have gone and interviewed other bankers. A lot of companies do that. We decided not to because we were very comfortable that based on the four plus years that we've been working together, that we were with the right banker and that you understood our needs.
2: Thanks for that. That's awesome. Going through, you know, within the transaction process, you mentioned the highest priority things to you had things to do with like culture, a growth plan. What what were some of those highest priority items that occurred to you guys when it came to finding the appropriate partner?
1: When we started looking at companies and uh, doing some of the meetings that you guys were setting up for us, we sat down and we spent time, just the four of us and said, what's most important? What do we like most about Zilker and what we've accomplished? And culture was our number one thing. We're like culture is, is very important to us, finding the fit where our culture will fit well into the acquiring company's culture, where there'll be opportunity for our people to grow and expand their careers, and where we think we have the highest opportunity to have impact with our skills were sort of the parts that we came out with and said, these are most important to us. And as we started to do the meetings, we obviously met with a few strategics and a few pegs. And going through that process, it was really interesting and eye-opening to see what the differences were and what the opportunities would be with each. And ultimately, we decided that strategic, and EY specifically, was the best fit for us and our people. The way that shook out for us was looking specifically around some of the strategies they had with Next Wave and building a better working world and how our deep technical skills and the the capabilities that our teams had across our different practices could really help deliver on that vision. And the more we spent time talking with EY about that... And what our role would be in helping deliver NextWave, we got more and more excited about it and knew that it was the right fit for us. So it was a bit of a transition from a, what's most important to evaluating different companies and the opportunities that they showed us, and then really seeing EY check the boxes of all of our key priorities and then providing us the opportunity for our team and our company to grow with inside their platform.
2: For sure, culture continues to be, you know, a huge thing that definitely influences a, you know, the outcome of these transactions. One question that we like to pose to people is, you know, how many members of that senior management team did you include in a process? And when did you get them involved? The number of people that certain companies have involved in a deal process could could shift. So talk a little bit about your strategy of. Who you involved from your side as well as you know when you decided it was the right time to share the news and expand the
3: team. I'll take this one. It was interesting. As Sean mentioned earlier, there were four co-founders of the company. So naturally the four of us were involved in all the meetings during the process and very obviously involved in the decision process. It was not until we had signed a letter of intent with UI that we brought the next group of people in. And that next group of people was was very small. It was our chief operating officer, our HR person. And then there were some folks within our finance group that were brought into the mix or into the know because they were going to be doing so much a part of our due diligence team, right? You can only for so long say, oh, we're going to get audited by our bank or something like that and we just decided that it was it was appropriate to bring that group in but as i said it was a really small group kind of on a need to know basis and while there were temptations along the way to tell other people because you know maybe they were involved in something with a client or something like that that could potentially be affected down the road where it's like oh you're going to love it you know when we get to the other side of this because we're going to be on this much bigger platform with a bigger company but We resisted that temptation and I think it's really good that we did. And I would recommend to others to keep the circle as small as possible and as feasible because if you don't, I've talked to others who have been a little bit more loose about opening up the group. One, the deal's not done until it's done. And you could forever put it in somebody's mind that, oh, well, now they're just trying to sell the company, right? And so if the deal had not come together, in our case, it did then you, know, you could be dealing with that going forward. But probably more importantly, when you tell people a million questions come out, why now, what does this mean? What was the rationale behind it and all that? And if you have to answer all those questions because you want to respect the people that are asking those questions, you want to do it at a time where you're not still trying to close the deal and going through due diligence. You want to ask, answer that at a time when you're prepared to answer all of those questions and to sit down and have round tables and and really do that. And so we announced it to the company when we had actually signed the agreement, the purchase agreement. And we were able to really think through and anticipate what types of questions we would get from the company, from the team, and really be able to sit down and spend the time necessary to start to get people comfortable with the decision.
2: I love that. Was there anything you guys encountered during the process that you know you wish you had been a little bit better prepared for? We'll put aside the global pandemic for the answer to this question.
3: <laughs> we were not prepared for that. None of us were, but that definitely made things a little spicier just because I normally during the process of kind of getting to know companies and especially when you're narrowed in on one company that you're going to go and have do a letter of intent with and start through due diligence. Not being able to do any of that in person was challenging, but surprisingly effective. I think that can be said of a lot of the ways that by a lot of people and how we're working today in this remote environment. So Sean and I, this is our first time being in this kind of a role in selling a company. But one of our partners, our CFO, had uh, experience with the sale of two other companies. And you know, through due diligence, so much of what goes on is, is in and around the financials. So he was probably surprised in, in you know his previous acquisitions by things, but this being his third time, I don't think anything really surprised him and he was pretty prepared. And, and we were very fortunate to have that kind of experience on our team as, as we went through this process.
2: And you, know, you guys ultimately ended up with EY and you've shared a little bit of color on this already, but why did they stand out to you and, and from all the other buyers and, and investors that ended up being around the table?
1: So
3: as Sean mentioned before, EY's next wave strategy, very, very strong ambitions for basically trying to become the best technology consulting firm in the world. That's a big ambition, but EY has that ambition. Sean, myself, our other partners, we're ambitious people. So that alone right there, we love that ambition. And we also like the way that they were setting it up. EY is very, very well known for its business consulting and even technology consulting and and helping to guide clients through digital transformation, where EY is really building out right now is in the actual execution of those digital transformation strategies. And we turned out to be a, a really perfect fit for that across the different solution areas that they're looking at, the different technologies and vendors that they work with as well. It was a really good fit in that regard. The other thing that we really liked about it is that EY is on this next wave journey, and they didn't just want to bring Zilker in for our technical skills. Those are obviously really important, really critical. They also liked the fact that we have experience, Sean, myself, our partners, our leadership team, in building and executing in technology consulting. And so they brought us in and gave us a seat at the table in terms of helping to build the strategy and grow the strategy moving forward. It was a really warm hug, so to speak, of everything that we do. And and that's why, as I said earlier, it was such a perfect fit.
1: The decision was very easy. And to add to that a little bit, the growth strategy and next wave was super appealing, as Rob talked about. But as we were meeting with the EY team that was leading the transaction, we were definitely interviewing them around the culture, the fit, the interactions of the leadership team with the consultants and and how that worked and talked a lot about what are the core values and how do we grow the team and how do we grow consultants that work inside of tech consulting and EY and what are we looking for for each one of those individuals and what can EY provide. As we really got down to it, some of our core values at Zilker were employees first, being passionate about our work, working as a team, and being fiscally responsible, treating the company's money like it's your own. As we talked more with the UI leadership and the DET group that we're inside of, which is the digital and emerging technology team, we found very common roads and very common goals around all of those core values, like how can we execute on them and how can we make them a reality? And one thing that stuck out specifically around this was the idea of having secret sauce protection teams where we're continuing to build on those cultural aspects and and capabilities and bringing that in to EY and enhancing the environment. It was a huge selling point for us in this transaction.
3: Yeah, thanks for that ad, Sean. And something I thought of in addition to that while you were talking about that is joining EY also gave us access to a much broader set of clients and also a different audience with those clients. We did well on our own, but we only had so many C-suite relationships (laughs) among our clients and and even beyond our clients that we could leverage. And coming into EY, just the interest and demand, not just from people who cover clients within EY, but even from from the clients themselves and what the new capability that, that was brought to EY adds to the, the value pile is just, has just been tremendous. And so the market opportunity for this has, has been
2: great. That's great. Sure. And we're super excited to hear about you know, your continued growth and, and future success with EY. So Thank I know you. we can all agree we're, we're super excited about the outcome of the process. Switching gears slightly, I think we can all agree that the impact on, on COVID-19 and, and consumer behavior is definitely undeniable in this point in time. And you know, digital experience for consumers is important. And you know, there's this concept of omnichannel that was definitely developed pre-COVID, but it's really accelerated. And the shift of the digital consumer journey is is creating an opportunity for companies like Zilker, you know, to become a leader in the space. Do you guys agree that COVID's really accelerated these types of e-commerce initiatives?
1: Yeah, this was something that was so amazing to see. COVID obviously was a, is a terrible thing, and it, it truly affected us all in, in very different ways. But one of the things that were most evident to us as a company was the need to really push the e-commerce envelope and make sure that you plugged any missing parts of your omnichannel capability. And early on, in, as things were rolling out and we were in lockdown. Our customers were trying to figure out how do we deliver and how do we survive when we can't open our stores, when we can't be face-to-face with our customers. And we spent a lot of time with them on on how can we drive forward. All over web meetings, obviously, but we really sat down and said, okay, well, hey, end-to-end customer journey, what does that look like in a COVID world? What are the digital touch points that we have to have available to us? How do we fulfill orders? How do we make customers feel safe? And we spent a lot of time helping companies plug those gaps in their omni-channel lifecycle and driving into new areas of business for them and new opportunities for them while their stores and their doors were closed. It was a, a very exciting time in the e-commerce world, and you've seen companies invest heavily in that space over the last year.
2: And you talked a little bit about this in your response just there, but. What were some of those pain points that you know, certain merchants are or, or have been facing along with this acceleration or if there wasn't an
1: acceleration? Right. Customers are used to interacting with the brand and it's a very personal relationship. And sometimes that takes place online, but more times than not, it was accompanied by a brick and mortar store someplace or a salesperson that they interacted with regularly in the case of B2B merchants. And what we found, as that started to go away, you had to find ways to plug those gaps and maintain that relationship. And some of the challenge came up was, you know, hey, we've got a really good website, we're able to capture orders, but maybe our fulfillment process isn't as strong as we would like, or how do we handle returns more successfully, or how can we take advantage of inventory in our different regions and locations whether they be stores or distribution centers, how can we most effectively get those to market and get those to the customers? And how do we do it safely, right? Like how do we deal with in-work environment and pick-pack-ship things? All that stuff came to play and had to, be, had to be taken care of both with technology and with just process change inside the, the customer's environments
2: and companies. Right. And maybe to talk a little bit about supply chains, you know, are they able to keep up with these transitioning distribution channels and the ultimate effects that that has on direct to consumer?
1: Through 2020, and we're we're seeing this in 2021, the continuation of it is, you know, we've started to shift as society more to those digital touch points and in interactions with the companies that we purchase from. And as a company, but it's easy to take those orders as long as you've got the infrastructure in place and you've got the website in place, which a lot of companies do. They might need some improvements there, but they're, they've got some of those in place already. But the fulfillment side of this is, is where people are really differentiating right now and being able to provide that premium white glove experience from order to package receiving and even potentially returns. So we're seeing a lot more investment in AI and machine learning throughout the supply chain and fulfillment lifecycle. We're seeing a lot of investment into newer technologies that can scale to meet demand. The world of having two servers and in your once-a-year holiday rush that you take those two servers and make them four, just for sake of example, isn't the case anymore. You need to be able to scale and demand. and and service your customers in new ways. And to do that, you need to have flexible and move to a more cloud native and cloud capable architecture. And I think those are some of the biggest biggest things that we've seen with challenges in, in the supply chain and the e-commerce side is, how do you build out that capability internally to better service your customers?
2: So within you know, customer experience, as you've commented, you know not only do providers need to make sure that the technology works, but you guys are also helping enable those merchants, those seamless experiences with capabilities such as two-day shipping, click to collect. How do you guys help clients succeed in what seems to be such a tall task?
1: Great question. People usually think of customer experiences as the, just the digital side of this equation. You know, What does my website look like? What's the usability of my website? What's my mobile app look like? What's the usability of that mobile app? How engaging is that? But what we're really starting to see is is what people need is the full lifecycle experience. I want an easy ordering process. I want an easy way to find information. I want an easy way to ask questions, whether it be chat or an AI assistant, whatever it might be. But once you get past that, there's a lot of work to be done to, to service your customer. You know, how does this order get sourced? How does it get picked? What's the most optimal place to ship it from? How do you most accurately track shipping and give updates? Just this past week, not only do we have a pandemic going on, but we had a major snowstorm and blizzard conditions in Texas, which threw everything upside down in a state that wasn't prepared for it. And companies were still successful because they've managed to optimize some of this fulfillment channel in allowing them to take, give customers different options, whether it was UPS or curbside pickup or Uber deliveries. Companies were more flexible and able to rebound to that situation. That's, you know, what we're seeing is more of the customer experience this part is you have to have that whole complete view of the the user journey and not just how do we get them to order capture most effectively.
2: Thanks for that. You know, as a firm, where are you guys seeing the biggest dislocation or need and and supply and demand for labor? Really, what type of skill sets are, are in high demand right now?
1: In technology consulting right now and, and with our customers as well, people with strong technical skills and engineering backgrounds are in high demand. And you know, if you have experience with e-commerce platforms or CMS platforms or public and hybrid cloud solutions, integration and API platforms, order management, and anything around full stack development for some of the microservice more cloud-native capabilities for things like Node.js or Spring Boot or event-driven architectures. It's a hot market right now if you have those skills and companies need them to be successful and and be able to deliver solutions to their customers in the type of environment we're in right now.
2: It's a good segue into how you guys see the next few years playing out. We hear things like headless commerce, virtual reality, direct to consumer, AI, machine learning, all the buzzwords out of all these e-commerce trends, what do you think is going to have the largest impact over, say, the next three, three to five years time?
1: I think from my perspective, customers are gonna expect that white glove service. And I, I know I said that before, but from beginning to end. And to enable that type of service for, for your end customers, it's gonna be really important that you can have flexible technology stacks things that are API-driven and able to scale to meet the demand. What I think will be most predominant over the next few years is embracing that more of a cloud-native approach to things, API-first, delivery of content, delivery of product information, checkout and procurement services, whether it's through your own channels or partner channels. I think Headless obviously plays a big role in that, in the ability to take more modern front-end capabilities, whether it be a React or regular, and bring that to market with the capabilities of these platforms through API-driven architecture is going to be the future for the next three to five years. And as far as AI and ML, I think we're on the cusp of that really starting to take off. And we're going to see more event-driven, machine-driven, decision-making in our supply chain and fulfillment processes, which should lead to a better customer experience and a faster time to market.
2: And definitely last, but certainly not least, what excites you both about the future? Not only within the e-commerce industry, but, you know, your position with EY.
3: I can start this one off. So many things excite me about the future. <laughs> Travel, eating in restaurants, more human <laughs> interaction, You and I both. (laughs) Yeah, I know. But in the context of this conversation, I think it's pretty straightforward for me. Our mission has always been to be a catalyst for growth and to drive material business impact for our clients. Joining the EY organization has accelerated our ability to do this. So what really excites me about the future is that our team, the Zilker team, has a bigger platform in EY to not only build their careers, but also to drive long-term client value, which they like, which we like, which clients like. That's what excites me.
1: Well said, Rob. Sydney, I agree with everything Rob said. The the future is bright, the opportunities are ahead of us, and we have a platform in EY that can really accelerate our capabilities and and bring them to market in ways that we couldn't as a, as a smaller firm. And it also provides opportunities career growth for our teammates and it's it's going to be an exciting next few years and looking forward to being along for the ride.
2: That's great and I know we're all looking forward to the day where we can all, you know, meet up again in Austin and appropriately celebrate this great transaction and result for you guys. It was truly a pleasure working with you both and and Matt and David and thank you so much again for the conversation today. It's always a pleasure to catch up and we very much enjoyed it. And to all, you know, please feel free to visit our website for more information on not only this transaction, but the others we've completed recently. And if you'd like to learn a little bit more about how Seven Mile runs a process, please don't hesitate to reach out to me or, or really anyone from our team. My emails, Sydney at dot com.
0: Thank you for joining us on this episode of Deal Talk with 7MA. You'll find more information and resources based on today's discussion exclusively on our website. If you're looking to dive deeper into today's topics, head to 7mileadvisors.com to speak to one of our bankers today. That's the number 7-M-I-L-E-A-D-V-I-S-O-R-S dot com. 7M Securities does not make any investment recommendation for any company or security that was discussed, nor does the firm offer any tax advice. Consult your tax advisor for any tax matter that might apply to you or your business.